Almighty God and everlasting Father, we now come to the portion of our service where your word speaks to us, where you speak to us through your word. We ask that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. I pray that you would grant me the grace that I need to preach your manner, your word, not in a manner of worldly wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power, that our faith would be built on that. And by your grace, let us go forward and put these things into action in our daily lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard an amazing story this week. It wasn't exactly a sermon illustration, but it was in an ecclesiastical context. And from what I can tell, it was an absolutely true story. It's one of those stories you don't hear very often. There was two college roommates who were being witnessed to by a third party, a friend. Long story short, one of them believes and gets saved. The other listens politely but says, no, thank you. It just doesn't make much sense. It doesn't ring very true to me. I don't have the faith. Now, the one who didn't believe was a national class diver. Someone who dives off of gigantic diving boards into a pool and was hoping to go to the Olympics. And he had special privileges to get into the pool area of the college where they were at because of this hope that they would have a student that went to the Olympics. It would be very good public relations for the college, obviously. And so he went into the pool, got into his trunks, and climbed up what appears to me to be like three miles up into into the sky and gets on one of those diving boards. And he's just standing there relaxing. And he stretches his arms out to get into the position that he needs to get into right before he makes the dive. And the lights from the back of the pool, um, they silhouette him. And his shadow goes onto the wall and he realizes that it's in the form of a cross. Now this does sound almost maudlin and too good to be true. That there's this shape of a cross. And he's, he's stunned. And the Holy Spirit brings to his mind all the things that he's been hearing from his, his friend. And he drops his arms and just stands there and thinks for a moment or two. Just thinks. And he hears something. A pool attendant comes in to the pool area, opens the door, makes a little bit of a racket, turns on the lights. The diver just turned on a spotlight or two, turned on the lights. The diver turned around to see who it was, and the pool was empty. There was no water in the pool. No water. If he, had, if he had jumped, that would have been it. And I have every reason to believe that this story is absolutely true the way I just told it to you. Now, that's an unusual occurrence. Most of us do not come to the Lord through that dramatic of a circumstance. That's just not the way God works all the time. That's why those types of stories surprise us because they are so unusual. But the story did hit me very hard. I heard it at at our friend's funeral this week. Someone stood up and gave a testimony. 
So the circumstances hit me very hard, but this, the power of the story would have hit me any place. That God truly is in control. He truly is the sovereign over the universe. And that even if we go through all types of troubles and pains and wearisome worries in this world, even if, heaven forbid, our lot turns out to be something like Job's for a while, that God is still there in our darkest moments, in the moments when we are the most fearful, in the moments when we lack faith. And our faith does take shots in this world. There are moments, even days, sometimes even weeks, months, and for some people years, where their faith just grows at a low ebb just because of the cares of this world. I don't want you to think that that's unusual. It's not okay, it's not acceptable, but it's not unusual. It happens to all of us. We all have our sleepless nights. We all have our nights or our days when we ponder if what we've believed is true. But it is true. It is the good news. It really does happen. People's lives get changed. And we need to get excited about that because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Sometimes our tradition, our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, sometimes, on occasions, we, for a moment, and the moment can be a while, we lose sight of the fact that the gospel is about people. That it's about people getting saved. It really is. There are a number of Reformed and Presbyterian forums on the internet. I don't belong to any, but I lurk around and read. And the conversations are usually very academic. Now, I find them interesting. But every now and again, I'm reading, I'm thinking, really? Are, are we, we going to have... There's, there's, there's 50 comments on this, and it's not that big of a deal. Nobody cares about it except us. I recall, uh, it wasn't even a threat. It was a gigantic running argument between three or four pastors about... What's the best translation? Two choices. King James and New King James. Those are the only two choices on that particular thread. This is a real conflict. I thought, man, they're both real good. They're both real good. There's some translations that are very weak, but if somebody doesn't have the word of God, I'd rather have them, you know. The first Bible I ever got was one of those little, little good news New Testaments. Got it in eighth grade. It's not even a translation. I don't recommend you buy it. Certainly don't recommend you give it as a gift. But I distinctly recall a little thirteen year old Catholic schoolboy. That's the first time I'd ever read the Bible. I was fascinated by it. Had little it was in the seventies, it had little kind of stick drawings in it. I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount, what I now know is the Sermon on the Mount, and thinking Whoa, this is really deep stuff. It took seven or eight years for that message to sink in, but that was the first seeds of the message. It's about people. It's about people. It's about us. God wants us to be saved. And he wants us to share that joy with other people. The salvation of souls. Isn't that what it's all about? That this world ultimately is going to pass away. It's going to go. 
And if it doesn't go before we go, it's still going to go. But the Word of God abides forever. And heaven is a real place, and so is hell. They're real places. And they're eternal, and they're permanent. And that's the point, is that what we have here is not permanent. The good times are not permanent. All of us who are adults know that, right? You hear people when you're uh, in your early 20s and you have so much wind in your sails, you, you hear someone a little older say, enjoy it while you can, kid, because it's not going to last forever. All of us have heard something like that. It won't. Not in this world. It's not going to. If you own a business, things will be good. Things will be bad. If you're in a family, sometimes things are going well. Sometimes things are going bad. It's just the way of life in a fallen world. But we can tell people, and more importantly, we need to continually tell ourselves that heaven does last forever. That God never says, enjoy it while you can, kiddo, because it's not going to last. Heaven is the eighth day, the eternal day. It's never going to end. And neither neither will perdition either, sadly much to our dismay and our hurt and our terror. And that's what Peter is trying to get through to his listeners and to us. That's what God is trying to tell us. We're not in the same circumstances as these Christians. They were under severe persecution. And I hear Christians now in in our settings talking about the persecution that's going to be coming to the American church. It might come, it may not come. I don't know. I'm no prophet nor a son of a prophet. But I can tell you this. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Not even close. When's the last time somebody barged into this church and told us that we couldn't have a worship service? Never. Or a Bible study at your home. In some places in the world, it's illegal to do that, you know. You have a little Bible study at your home in North Korea? Good times are not on the horizon if you get caught. Good times are not on the horizon. If you get caught doing that in Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Sudan, bad times will come. Your family will get hurt. You will get hurt. You might not even have a job. You can forget about applying for one because nobody's going to give you one. You'll be outcast. And those are our brothers and sisters. These people here who are listening to us in the first century, they were our brothers and sisters. They're part of the communion of saints. And what Peter is trying to do here is to give them encouragement to realize that what we have to do is take that that phrase that we all heard in our early 20s. Enjoy it, kiddo, while you can, because it won't last. We have to tell ourselves that continually about the hard times here on earth. That the pain will not last. No matter how excruciating it is. No matter how horrible our lives might be at any one time. And sometimes they do get horrible. Even for middle class Americans, our lives can turn into just horror stories. They just can. Due sometimes to no fault of our own. We have to be able to tell ourselves something better is coming. The bad times will not last. The good times eventually will. And to call heaven good times fails at describing what it is. When you read John's description of it in in Revelation, you quickly become aware that he's out of his mind, literally. He's in a state of spiritual ecstasy, and he's trying to describe things that the human eye can't understand and the pen can't really describe. 
crystal cities paved with gold. Okay, it's, it's an image to tell us, hey, we're not going to need gold in heaven. We won't need it. All our needs will be provided for. We're not going to need any gold. There won't be any gold exchange. There won't be any silver exchange. There won't be any crisis with the euro. There's not going to be any money. It's going to be in heaven. It's going to be a great time. He's trying to describe heaven. It's hard to. Like describing what an orange tastes like to somebody who's never tasted citrus. What, what do you, where, where are you going to go? It tastes like an orange. Can't say it tastes like chicken because it doesn't. It tastes like an orange. And the first thing Peter does is, he, as I said last week, real quick in review, he points out to them that they're pilgrims. And we have to remember that we're pilgrims, we're travelers, we're sojourners in this world. And if we get too tied to this world, if we let our feet get too bound by this world, then the bad times and the good times will seem all too permanent to us. And we will forget to keep our eyes on the prize. And here's what happens to people in our circles. What I found is it's not the hard times that usually drive us away. It's the good times that allow us to just kind of drift away. Things become so easy. Things become so. We live in a society, praise be to God, where things are fairly easy. If you want to know some information, you don't even have to get up and go to the encyclopedias. You just hit your phone and magic, there's the information. More information than you care to know. We live in a society where ease is there. But that can lull us to sleep. That can lull us to sleep. When we realize that when hard times come, switching the channel is not an option. You can't, you can't just switch the channel when hard times come. You have to stay there on that channel and deal with the static. There used to be a thing called static on the TV, kids. It's not there anymore. It used to be there. There are all kinds of ingenious ways to make it go away. And what are we going to do? Are we going to allow the good times to lull us to sleep or the bad times to slowly push us away? Hopefully neither. And the only way that we can guarantee that those things won't happen is if we pay attention to what we believed and to remember that we're pilgrims and to remember that we are, as I pointed out last week, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that the Spirit has sanctified us and set us apart for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are God's special people. We are different than the world. If we try and be too much like the world, and let me just tell you this, the PCA, our denomination, is right now in a state of uh, almost in crisis in terms of who we are. Who we are. We have a, strate- we have a 10-year strategic plan. Did you know that? I thought we already had one. It's called the Great Commission. There's a number of us that think these things are a little, a little silly. A strategic plan? One of my professors from seminary left the seminary and went to pastor a big church. Now he's going back to the seminary with a different title. He used to teach the New Testament. Now he's going to teach theology. And he's also, I told David Gordon this, this sounds Orwellian. This sounds scary. He's vice president for strategic academics. I don't know exactly what that means, but that sounds like a serious title. Now that sounds, that sounds, that sounds too, I don't know. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but you start talking strategy at our seminary. I just get a little nervous, especially when you know, 
president just left and a new one's there. It just seems a little weird. Can't take our eyes off the big picture. We are the people of God. And there's some people in the PCA that want the PCA to be big players in the world. And we try to tell them, look, we're 300,000 people. Okay? How many Roman Catholics are there in the world? Can you count that high? There's billions. There's never, in our lifetime, going to be 2 billion, 2 million, 3 million Reformed Presbyterians. It's not going to happen. The message is, is just too, too, too bitter to swallow. We have to be content and to do what God has commissioned us to do. We're pilgrims in this world. There's some of us, my fellow pastors, that are that really, I, I love them, I love them, but they're really focusing on big buildings and big programs and big headlines, and that's not what it's about. Now, they care about souls, they really do, but it's just, it's just a conflict of opinion. We're pilgrims. We get too tied to this world. Then you have other people in the PCA who says, we should just forget about church buildings altogether. They're a waste of money. Five million dollars for a building. Why not just have a bunch of small house churches? You know, like you know, in the city, real radical little house churches. You know, attack the city from little little angles of cells. You save a lot of money. I don't know if it's going to work. And then there's those of us in the middle who say, you know, the traditional church model has kind of worked for two thousand years. Why don't we roll with that? If it's not broke, don't fix it. Fine tune it as it goes. We're pilgrims in this world, set apart for obedience. That's the catch. We have to be obedient. We have to be obedient. And then he points out that we have this inheritance. And then in verse 6 he tells us, In this you greatly rejoice, because we dealt with the other verses last week. In this you greatly rejoice. What? That in verse 5, that we're kept by the power of God. That's what we need to greatly rejoice in. That we're kept by the power of God. So let me ask you this. Do you rejoice in the knowledge that you are kept by the power of God or are you receiving your joy from something else? Most of us don't think about being kept by the power of God. That God is shielding us from ourselves. That God is shielding us from the sin of our loved ones and our friends. That God is shielding shielding us from the world. That we're kept by the power of God. Now, if we would focus on that, and think that through one or two steps, we'd realize that's cause for great rejoicing. You know what that really means? That if we're obedient, we can't really make that bad of an earth-shattering mistake. We can't. If we're kept by the power of God, then if we do things God's way, as best we can, we're going to sin, we're going to make blunders, we're going to make mistakes, but we won't go so far off course that we're like Columbus. And Columbus found America by accident. He was looking for the West Indies. That's why he called the natives Indians, because that's where he thought he was. Not realizing the Vikings had already got here 500 years earlier. Got there on accident. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Found the most plentiful continent on planet Earth on accident. If we do things God's way, if we're obedient, we will veer. But we'll come back. We won't won't veer so far off course that we get shipwrecked. Because it's an impossibility. Because we are kept by the power of God. But Peter reminds them very quickly in us that we rejoice in this even though now for a little while 
a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now notice he says, a little while, if need be. There are some people who are Christians and they literally don't have many problems. And we say silly things like, oh, they lead a charmed life, which is, you know, black magic kind of language. They lead a charmed life. He's lucky. That's, you know, Chinese roll the dice kind of theology. Some people, for reasons that we are not given, have easier lives than others. It's just that. That's a simple fact. We're all equal in the eyes of God, but he gives us all different trials. He gives us all different levels of prosperity. And some people just have it easier. It's just the way it is. But if need be, we might experience trials for a little while. But if that occurs, then we need to rejoice that we are kept by the power of God. That even while we're going through these trials, that we are kept by the power of God. That God will never leave us. That God will never forsake us. That no one can snatch us out of, out of, out of the palm of his hand. That it's an impossibility. If you've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, you're his. It's, it, the deal is sealed. The covenant is, is done. You cannot be taken away. You can't run away. You can't get away yourself, even if you want to run. Now, I've known Christians like that who have tried to run away from God. And you know what? It's a futile process. Because if God has put his mark on you, he will drag you back kicking and screaming. It's much more fun to walk back on your own with the power of the Holy Spirit than to have him drag you back from a period of backsliding. If you're God's, he will not let you go. Does that make you happy? When you think about your own sinfulness? To realize that every time we sin, every single time we sin, even just a little bit, we say one little word that's out of line or or we think one little thought that's out of line, that that would be just cause for God to realistically say, I'm done with you. Forever. Because he's perfectly holy. But he doesn't. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, we don't say just one little word of blunder or think one bad thought. It's, uh, there's usually a number there. There's usually a list. Some of them are like choruses and songs. We've said them so many times. How many times have you had to say sorry for sin X, Y, or Z? Now we, some of us have that. We go over the same ground and God doesn't ever tell us goodbye. Now that shouldn't mean that we should lax up and just say, well, you know, it's just who I am. No, we should always be trying to kill the sin that's in us, but to realize that we're kept by the power of God and that nothing we do, say, or think will ever make God push us away is a cause for great rejoicing. And Peter tells us that there's a reason why we have struggles. That the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold. And remember, this is a golden economy back then. They actually used gold and stones. The gold perishes. But our faith, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the end of time. The revelation of Jesus Christ when we see him. When we stand before him. That our faith will be proved genuine. It won't be fool's gold. It won't be a cubic zirconium. It will be real. And the faith tests, gets tested by the trials of this life. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus himself, whom having not seen you love, 
Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the end goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Your body will grow old if Christ tarries and he doesn't take you away early. Your body will grow old and we'll grow tired. We'll get sick. But our souls will be saved and our bodies will be resurrected on the last day and refashioned after Christ's indestructible body and reunited with our already perfected souls. That's why we can take comfort when loved ones in the Lord pass because we know that they are literally in the presence of the Lord with joy, the type of joy that we can't begin to imagine because our joy down here will always be mingled with a little bit of sorrow. You know, there'll always be a little bit of vinegar in the, in, the, you know, in the juice, whatever sweet thing you want to think about. Let me ask you this. Do you love Jesus? Though you haven't seen him? Do you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory? Does that describe your life? Does that describe our life as a church? Yes, yes, no, no. Kind of goes back and forth. It's very simple as to how to get this. It's simple to understand how to get that joy. It's not always easy to always have it. Here's the key, going back to the beginning. We're pilgrims. If we realize that Christ has come and carved out the victory, and if we realize that this world is not our home, and that we truly are travelers and pilgrims here, and if we truly realize that the trials that we go through, the aches and pains of our bodies, sometimes the trials of loved ones are harder to watch, that it's all going to pass. If we can focus on that pilgrim status, then the cares of this world will not worry us quite as much. Even if tanks come rolling down the street, we'll realize this is going to hurt, but it's not permanent. That's the only way that people under siege get through. That's how your brothers and sisters get through it in the Sudan or in Yemen or North Korea. That's how they get through it, realizing that North Korea isn't, isn't God. That God is God and that we're pilgrims and that we are his children and that he loves us with so much love that no one can take us away from him, not even ourselves. That's where we get our joy from. The trials of this world will pass. The joys of this world will pass. But the love of Christ will never pass. Grab hold of that and watch him do great things in your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith and we ask that you would fan our faith into flames so that we'd be literally on fire for you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.